Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. One of the things that's always really interested me when it's come to data is uh, the hard part is not often collecting the data, it's persuading people to believe it. Yes. Did you find that the cultural aspects of data are probably the hardest part of your job? That's a really good question, Mark. I, I think so, yeah. We, um, we spend a lot of time with customers trying to understand the opportunity that exists within this growing amount of data that they have. I mean, when I talk publicly, I talk about um, 80% of the world's data was created in the last two years. And you know, businesses around the world are trying to, are really grappling about how to get their hands around it, how to use it. And um, on the cultural side of things, we, we, we've, we've built some solutions that, you know, we're still a young company and we're still, you know, we're, you know, we're still getting our name out there. But when we get inside a company and we start working with them, you find these pockets, you know, these individuals that kind of get it immediately and they become your champions and they be, they, they're the guys that are trying to remove the barriers within the organization. Even though ironically, some of this automates part of their job. No, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but then conversely comes a bit of fear of data, a bit of fear of AI and the unknown. And it's particularly the, the term AI, which we try to avoid a little bit these days. You know, people start to conjure up images of, you know, robots and Terminator 2 or, or they, they read about in the press. But then when we come in and, and we start to, you know, and I was saying to this before, we, we had this interview that, you know, the slogan of our company is data has a better idea. And, and, and just sometimes what the data tells you to do is a little bit counterintuitive because it removes the human bias from your decision making. And so people tr really try to understand what's driving the recommendation in the data, what's driving the output, but it also challenges their current thinking. And that means that we in Hivery also end up being like change agents. We have to go out there and you know, educate people on, on, on the power of data, the uses of it, the benefits of it, how it can make them actually better at what they do, not replace them. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I spoke last year at this conference and I was talking about sort of elevating and augmenting the human decision making rather than replacing it. But it's, I think we're at the very beginning. I mean, it's been happening for a while, but there's still a ways to go in terms of organizations fully adopting this. I want to come back to this theme. Um, having a cup of coffee backstage yeah. at the NAMA show with uh, Jason Hosking, who's the CEO and founder of Hivery, uh, which is a retail AI startup uh, backed by Coca-Cola. Jason, you know, thank you. You accepted my random cold call out of the digital world to, to catch up. So uh, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. No problem. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the subtle differences, I think, in, in what you're talking about is that there's a shift from the way retailers have thought about data in the past and the way they have to accept it now. Because, you know, certainly for the last you know, maybe even 50 years, retailers have been very data-driven. Mm. Uh, Sears was very data-driven. Walmart was very data-driven. Mm. They were the first to innovate with, you know, tracking SKUs and, uh, you know, right to the very detail of cutting costs in their supply chain. But the difference here is that in many cases, the data is not being analyzed by humans, it's being analyzed by machine learning algorithms mm. that's generating a recommendation that people don't always completely understand where mm. it comes from. And then, then they have to trust to follow it. Mm. So is that is that really the shift now between, I guess, the data-driven retailer and the algorithmic retailer? Uh, look, absolutely. Uh, when we talk about where where Hivery fits, we talk we, we say we fit in this world called prescriptive science, uh, or prescriptive analytics. 
And so historically, all the things that you've been talking about, and retail has been one of the best adopters of, of analytics, but it's all, it's all kind of descriptive analytics. It's, it was operations research, it's right? operations which re- came out of Taylorism. And- yeah, exactly. And they're all like they're taking data and looking historically what happened and, and unpacking that, generating insights that can help them improve. Then they start, everyone started to look at you know, predictive analytics. How can I use that data historically to start to predict what's going to happen next? But then when you start to get into like machine learning and, and AI, then you've got so many various predictions. What's the best thing you can do? And, and prescriptive analytics is actually the data tells you what to do. So we can, you know, our, our solutions actually do that. They take the guesswork out, they, they, they remove the human bias, and they say, hey, tell, you tell the machine what you're trying to do. You're trying to maximize volume. You're trying to you know, generate, ma- maximize profitability when you factor in cogs. You're trying to maximize efficiency out of your space. Tell the machine what to do, what, what you want to achieve, and it will tell you exactly what to do at each specific location. That is quite confronting for, for the, for the kind of, for someone who's been on this well, journey. For, for leaders, it's a potential loss of agency. Yes. I mean, because they spent years working to the position where they, they have the authority to make a judgment call on this. And yes. Now you're telling them to just actually listen to the algorithm. Listen, listen to it and trust it. And when one of the, one of the greatest, uh, one, of, one of the funnest times I had with that is, you know, every, the way we try to, to, to demonstrate that is, is to prove it. So usually in all of our engagements, we go through sort of a piloting phase where we say, hey, let's, don't trust me, let's, make, let's, let's go out and, and do a pilot, let's do an, run some experiments out in your field, and let's see if we actually generate the return we say we're going to do. And, and we have a vending solution, and we were testing out here in Vegas, and, and our, it, was kind of, it was kind of weird. It was this great example. Our algorithm suggested that uh, a, a protein... A chocolate-flavored protein drink would sell on a vending machine on the 13th floor of the Mirage Hotel in Las Vegas. Was it a bodybuilding convention? Well, exactly. Well, no. Well, this is the thing, right? Everybody starts to figure out why. Is there a bodybuilding convention? In? Is, there, is there a gym on that floor? Everybody's trying to look for these reasons. And, 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 and we looked and we said, uh, we actually don't know why it's recommending that. But of all the SKUs you have availability, and based on the individual fingerprint of that machine, this is a product that you're not selling that, we th- that it is being predicted to sell well. And they went, it doesn't make any sense. You know, what are you guys smoking over there at Hivery? And then we said, oh, just try it and let's see what happened. We predicted that it would sell six units in, in two days. We went to the machine and we did the old put the arm in the vending machine test and it had sold five. And everybody looked around and our customer at the time just said, why did that happen? And then someone just said, because data has a better idea. It understands so many more possibilities than right. we were able to compute ourselves. And I guess that fingerprint is not static as well. I, it's I mean, constantly changing. It was reflecting a, 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 a series of complex variables at that point of at, time. At that specific time. But if they ran it again, it might say zero or 20. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So, you know, that's, that's the other thing. Um, and you talk about the change uh, in, the, in the retail landscape. You know, for example, we do work with, uh, with some of the big retailers like Walmart. And when they look at set, set their categories in stores, traditionally, they've done that on, on an annual basis. So they kind of run their strategies with their suppliers, look at the analysis and set their sort of assortment and strategy for the year. When you start to get AI plugged into this, it can respond to the dynamics of the marketplace in essentially real time. And so you can find yourself changing your strategy very frequently, as frequently as you're operationally able to do to respond to that. You know, it's, it's, like it's listening to the consumers that are 
that are, you know, we, it's sort of uh, data for us is the voice of the consumer. And what you've really got to do is, is, is listen to that data because it tells you what the consumers want and, and, and what they need. And if you have the ability to respond to it, then you can kind of generate much greater returns. But um, yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that's part of the fun. Well, what's the story of how you started? Because this, um, you know, from what I've read, this was something that spun out originally out of an initiative at Coca-Cola. Right. Is that right? So it's, it's a pretty long, long story, but I'll keep it short. So I, I was uh, one of the original founders brought into something called the Coca-Cola Founders Program. Right. Um, it was a really interesting kind of program to where Coke's sort of found outside entrepreneurs, put them inside like an entrepreneur in residence program and said, hey, let's solve some really difficult problems. Let's look at new technologies. Let's create some new businesses and let's innovate to try and, okay, if Coke's going to be disrupted, let's do it ourselves. And so, um, you know, I was in Sydney. It was the first location globally. And then soon after that, there was locations in San Francisco, Berlin, Tel Aviv, Rio, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Is, is the noise okay? Yeah. And anyway, so what we, we were exploring, uh, we were exploring wearable technology. This was like you know five years ago, uh, big data. And we also wanted to kind of connect at the right points with the Coke ecosystem. So we actually, um, in Australia, did a, a, an open innovation challenge, a, a hackathon, if you will, where we got a whole lot of Coca-Cola Amatil data um, and we made it public. Um, and we said, hey, let's design the perfect store. And we then had truck drivers, store operators, um, supply chain people, and then we invited in designers, entrepreneurs, <laughs> um, you know, software engineers. And, and, um, so you took the whole logistics value chain. And just said, let's play with it. Right. And that's the end of the result of that. Uh, we met um, some data scientists that were part of what was then NICTA, uh, which is now the CSIRO's Data61, which is the Australian-backed sort of R&D data science research, one of the you know, world's leading kind of uh, labs, research labs in, in this field. And so I started working with um, three data scientists out of there, three researchers. One, one was a PhD in AI, the other one was a PhD in machine learning, and the other one was a PhD in operations research. Uh, and that led, that collaboration ultimately led to Hivery where we, we spun the, the IP out of Data61, um, those three um, found uh, three researchers came in as technical founders, and myself and Frankie went in as the CEO and the right. COO. That was that was three and a half years ago. Um, the Coca-Cola company invested, and 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 since then, you know, it's um, a little over three and a half years now. We're now about forty people strong. We got offices in Tokyo and, and America. But, and but what I found really interesting about this, and and I've seen this with Coca-Cola before and other large organisations, is that sometimes to get the you know, the momentum to change the culture of the way you use data, you need to bring in outside people, you know, and you need to relook at all of your ecosystem in a, in a different way. Oh, they not only, they not only needed um, new people, they needed new ways to engage. And, you know, there's sort of, there is a little bit of irony, I guess, in the story that, you know, for us to kind of really to go out and succeed is, is we had to kind of leave the parent and go out on our own and you know because yeah. we could move with the speed and agility to solve these problems we could take you know we could take more risk uh, as, as our as a, as a startup as, as opposed to being inside the organization so we were really challenged to move as quickly as possible and change the game as aggressive I, as I, I was uh, I was doing a job for coca-cola in um, in West Africa actually yeah and they were experimenting um, in Nigeria with arming a lot of their um, 
you know the the, the people who went into stores uh, to yeah. look at uh, the merchandising of Coke. Yeah. Basically, um, algorithms on tablets which told them exactly how to rearrange all the merchandise yeah. and talking points to bring up with the merchant mm. about how to drive promotions for that store in that particular area in that particular time. Yeah, that's very cool. And this was a couple of years ago, and I just thought, you know, this is you know really where you're starting to augment mm. human beings at scale. Right, and, and, and that's that's sort of exactly right. That's the sort of area we play in, and, and you know what what we you know there's uh, in a, in a different field there was this great uh, study um, that Accenture did I think about um, the use of AI in, in the medical field, and they tested the ability uh, for a pathologist to look at um, uh, scans to to test um, to a, to find uh, identify women with breast cancer. And, and they had an error rate of like 0.85. This, this is the reason why I'm telling this story. <laughs> then, 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 um, then they gave it to an AI. They gave the same, exact same information and, 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 and the algorithm had a slightly improved error rate, improved by about 5%. But when the pathologist started to interact with the AI, they had a 95% improvement in the error rate. So what we're talking about here is exactly that. You want the experts in their field using their strategic knowledge, their knowledge of the customer, the human interaction, the ability to walk around the store to make strategic decisions, but, it, but enhancing that decision making with the right information that is mining all of this, this, this huge amount of data that's surrounding them, understanding the unique variables of that store, understanding what's going to drive value. You know, I agree with you, this, this relationship is essential, especially when you're using you know, probabilistic automation, yeah. you know, where um, the job of the human is not just to check the machine, it's actually to teach it to get better with time. Exactly. Where have you seen this operationalized in retail, like this relationship of humans and machines working together around AI recommendations? Do you have any stories you can share? Oh yeah, sure. So I mean, you know, we're here at NAMA, which is this big vending conference, and you know, vending is such a weird place for us to start, but that's our kind of marquee product, or our first product. Um, we have a whole suite coming out of our retail innovations teams that's in a different space, but that's actually kind of changed the game. So what, what, what happened in, in, with that tool is, we were looking at the, the vending data, and we just went back to our customer and said, hey, you guys could make a whole lot more money out of your vending machines. You're not stocking them right. And that was kind of a bold statement for a data scientist that had been looking at data for, for a week to a company that had been doing it for 50 years. Because vending machines are actually like sensors, right? They collect massive amounts of data. Yeah, like every sale. Yeah, exactly right. And they're like, if you think about them, they're like little micro retailers. They're, they're, you know, they've got a finite amount of space. They've got a whole amount, amount of SKUs that they can choose and, you know, they, and the consumer interacts directly with them. Anyway, so we, we built this system that was basically mimics what happens online that has a recommendation engine that can tell you which products will sell in which locations to maximize the revenue, how much space to allocate for efficiencies. Right. But we, but that was great, you have an algorithm, but then you had to build it into a tool that operators that weren't data scientists could use and could become every, part of their everyday pattern. So when you think about vending machines, they're, they're a very operational business, they're, you know, there are drivers that go and visit the machines, there's scheduling, supply chain, inventory, cash collection. So we had to build a tool that that was really simple for them to use. So we, so we, you know, what we pride ourselves on is building these tools that are so simple that they sort of defy the complexity that sits un underneath them. And so, what's happened then is we've now got you know vending operators around the world using this in Japan, China, Europe, and, and America. But to see the journey they go on to a, to, to first understand that. Well, who is, you know, what, what is the working relationship? Who is the person in the organization in a vending machine company who is now working with that AI? Is it it's it's a the, planner. It's, right. a, it's like a planner that sits in the office looking at how to drive 
increase the return on those vending machines by understanding how they can optimize those machines based on what an and AI does, is telling them. Does the AI get better as a result of their inputs? Yeah, so, so well, well, the way we actually designed it was actually the other way around is we we say, here's the easy button, press the button and it will tell you <laughs> right. the best configuration. It's like I'm feeling lucky on Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling lucky, press the button and it gives you all the KPIs. But if they don't believe it or they've got an, or they know something that the AI doesn't, um, it, can, it, can, it can manually make changes and it can see how the KPIs will change. But over the course of time, what's been really interesting is it, is it starts to show um, how the, the human bias, the human's inputs have kind of been mischaracterized. So there was this great example of uh, stocking machines in, in, in hospitals. And so they have like a standard set that they put into hospitals, but our, our, our recommendation engine was, it was, it was recommending energy drinks. And they're saying, hold on, you know, uh, someone in a hospital you know, just had an operator just doesn't want an energy drink. But when they and had been categorized as a hospital, when they went and looked at the machine, it turns out the machine was actually behind the scenes and it was the one that all the doctors were using. And because they're doing such long shifts, they needed these energy drinks to kind of stay up. And we have another great example of a stadium out in California where it found out we were recommending Minute Maid lemonade to go into all these machines. And like, that just doesn't sell anywhere in these vending machines. Why there? It was because it was in the loading dock where all the groupies hang out and they're all getting Minute Maid to top up their drinks. And and, and it was like data was picking up these things that they just that, that they weren't you know that they weren't seeing and 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 so as our customers have learned to use and understand that data, then they can start adding more inputs. They can now start adding more information that then right. helps the AI get smarter. They can start using it in different ways. They can start they can start Just, showing it to their customers. I, I mean, customers. I mean, obviously the, the, these systems are learning from the data the retailer has. But yeah. as it gets smarter, are you creating like universal objects? with intelligence based from the de-aggregated data from all of your retailers? Or, the, or are they getting quarantined? You know? uh, right now they're quarantined. That what you just suggested is, is an idea that we're floating around in our, in our data science team. Um, we need to make, you know, we, I mean, I think for the most part, we have to make sure we keep our, you know, the data quarantined and confidential. Yeah. But I think we have some customers that would be quite willing to, to look at that and see what we could what we could learn from it. Because it would be amazing if you were a Greenfields operator and you wanted to assess a particular location. Yeah. To be able to have the intelligence to know that actually, you know, there's things missing in this space. Yes. And I think and I think, you know, Mike, you touched on something there. I think with the amount of data we have from the amount of suppliers and the various you know, in the various locations around the world, wins that we we probably have the ability to do that in a really interesting and accurate way. But let's think bigger about you know beyond vending about you know retail and I guess one of the questions is what is the organisational model of the 21st century algorithmic retailer? Um, do you need merchandisers anymore? <laughs> I mean, because I mean, you know, there are a number of organisations already in the US that are scaling down their merchandising departments because. Mm because of algorithms and data and automation. Mm. Um, you know, who are the most valuable people in the sort of 21st century retailer? How do you make yourself, you know, where do you cut and, and where do you, you know, where do you build? That's a, yeah, look, look, I think you need to, you need to invest in, in the technology and you need to be finding, what I'm most interested in is finding the right engagement models. We were talking yeah. a little bit about this because, you know, Big retailers in particular, or retailers in particular, and these suppliers have these huge and immensely valuable data sets that you can do so much with. But they also have, you know, archaic 
and hierarchical reporting structures, silos. Absolutely, <laughs> and and that's the big challenge, right? And, right? and some of these companies are so big that you know that the, the various silos and the various you know bureaucracies sort of get in the way of, of of real real progress sometimes. I think the merchandising questions are really interesting. One we've been doing a lot of work. You know, our, our, our tool that we're about to release to market kind of completely changes the game in terms of category management and merchandising and understanding exactly which strategies will work. It's gone from being a very operational tool to a strategic tool that can, it takes a process today that takes three months yeah. with a huge amount of manual input into three minutes. That's so what, you, you might still have people in this department, but yeah. you maybe have three rather than 300. Exactly, and, and like there are a bunch of processes within that that kind of start to start to disappear. Like for example, there are huge labor costs in drawing, like physically drawing planograms for you know these for all of these big stores, we, we can do that in, in seconds at the press of a button with a high degree of accuracy. And so, what you find is instead of having someone just sort of physically drawing a planogram or whatever, you're actually having people having really strategic discussions around what's going to drive value, what's happening in the market, what other things should we be looking at, what are we not thinking about, and how can we plug that into a system that can spit us out an answer. And so, yeah, I think you'll see a dramatic a, a dramatic shift in in the kind of category management, merchandising. Uh, you know, you even look at some retailers out there. You know, the other, the other, you know, investing in all sorts of technologies in their stores, camera technologies, robots that go around that are that are you know trying to keep an eye of the inventory, the shelf, or, or, inventory. or restocking. Yeah, and restocking, right? Well, what are the other parts of the retailer that you think have got the potential to be disrupted besides merchandising and category management? <sighs> I think I, I struggle to find a part that's not not right yeah. for disruption. I mean, I think supply chain is a big one that's already been happening. I mean, I think the most interesting thing for me in all of this space is, is you know, the retail world is changing dramatically. You know, you've got the online retail changing the game, you know, the, the threat of Amazon constantly, you know, the, the Amazon disruption model, you know, buying Whole Foods, what does that mean and what are they going to do there? You have you know consumer needs changing dramatically. The store experience is changing. I think contrary to popular belief, the number of retail outlets is not declining, but actually the size of those retail outlets are. Um, and so, so you're getting more of a curated, targeted experience. Yeah, curated, targeted experience. And then within that retail environment, there's actually more space allocated to um, experience because you want to engage the consumer in different ways. And so actually figuring out how to get the space right in the rest of the store and understanding how that is. So that's what we focus on. Yeah. I think that's a really core challenge because space, for a retailer, space equals money. And how do you maximize that? So that's what we focus on. And we, I think the other part of that is pricing. I think you know, but you, price elasticity and promotions. I mean, you can measure the success of a particular SKU in a particular area. Yeah. How do you measure the experience? No, well, that's, that's, that's hard. Right. And And, because things like Net Promoter Score just feel like too low resolution to really capture and, you know, and, 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 people's and beliefs you, about a brand. Yeah, and what, what, what do you do with that? But I think you, you know, there, are, there, are, there are vast, like, so it's about investing in data sets or creating new data sets so that, that, that can sort of plug into, plug into the existing ones. But I think where, are, where we focus on, to be really honest, Mike, is yeah. we focus on, you know, I talked about 80% of the world's data created in the last two years. But on average, organisations use about 12% of those, some, some minute amount of that. So you've got to, if you think about that, and that was kind of the core about why this business came into existence, you've got an exponential growth in the amount of data being produced, organisations struggling to get their hand around it. Let's build a capability that 
can really unpack the value in that data. And so there's two things we do. One is our product side. The other, the other is our kind of retail innovations <laughs> experiment. You know, when I want to talk to you about that, we send guys in that just kind of that try and solve these problems. So when someone says to us, hey, what, what if we could do this? We say, well, we actually don't know if that will work, but we'll send in some designers and data scientists and try and try and unpack the problem, look at the data site, like look at what the data's telling us, understand the current reality of that world, understand where it could go. And, and what, what I'm trying to get at is have a really experimental mindset. So the number one thing that I think retailers need to do, suppliers or anybody that is trying to do this, is they need to take on embed in their DNA the ability to run experiments continually, to continually be testing, saying, hey, this is an idea, let's test, let's find the quickest, easiest way to test it, and then iterate it on it, so. Aside from Amazon, have you seen any other traditional retailers embrace that kind of culture? I think they're all trying to. <laughs> they're all trying to. I, I guess the problem is sometimes it's located within the digital department or the, yeah. you know, the AI team, rather than the entire organization. Yeah, and, and that's actually, you, you know, we work with a number of retailers and a, and a number of suppliers. So, you know, without mentioning names, so what, what what we do see is is the engagement is now getting closer to the business. So, typically, you know, where data d data science companies or analytics or software they sort of you know either come in via the CTO or the CIO or over in the digital in this new digital teams that are being formed. Now we actually find we're engaged by business owners, you know, within the category teams or. Right or you know, within that business line. You know, we're, we're working with a bunch of you know, revenue growth management businesses around AI-driven promotions and stuff Right, because like they're that. not trying to digitize a process. They're actually trying to find a business solution for a, a problem. Yeah, they've actually said, hey, you know, for example, like I've talked about this promotions piece, we, um, someone came to us and said, hey, our products are constantly, constantly discounted. Um, there's promotions fatigue. We've tried, we've tried a bunch of the traditional consulting companies. We've done all this stuff. We've never been able to do anything transformational or different in this space. Could you have a look at this and do something different? And that model that I just described came in and, and, and they were trying to solve a problem. They came to us, they wanted to, they wanted to change their way, way they drove promotions across their annual promotions calendar. They wanted it to, like we talk about, respond to the dynamics of the market that they can read every day. They, they wanted it to learn and get smarter and they wanted to, actually kind of generate a return on that investment. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on promotions, yet they felt like they weren't getting anything from it. Yeah. And so they, they had a very specific challenge. And so that was coming to us from a business owner in a revenue growth management team controlling big budgets. And we engaged at that level, not, not you know, and, and then we actually find, this is where it gets interesting, then, you know, we do a skunk works, little, little kind of proof of concept, <laughs> little experiment, the results are profound. And then, and then this back to that culture piece. When it looks to scaling and bigger budgets and driving it forward, that's when we come into that. We either sometimes come into conflict with the kind of existing structures, the digital team that has been set up to do this, or, or well, you well, know, the internal data yeah, science. I guess the big question ultimately is going to be, what does the AI retail stack look like? Yeah. You know, because you've got you guys operating around the kind of recommendation product management layer. Yeah. There's going to be a bunch of software. There already is around logistics, supply chain, exactly. optimization, route management. Yeah, we're trying to. Yeah. Fraud is another layer. Yeah. You know, payment processing. What are some of the other parts of the stack that you're, you know, not what you guys are doing, but that you're maybe seeing that 
people are looking at? Well, I, I think there's a lot of interest. You know, we we do because um, we're focused in the in the more bricks and mortar space. I think the in-store technologies are the interesting ones. So, um, uh, image recognition. Um, there's a lot of inf- there's a lot of we're, we're working with a supplier in Japan at the moment that is now putting cameras on all of its shelves and then using image recognition to actually. So what what they don't know is like they when a product is sold, it's scanned at the checkout and you get the POS data, right. but they don't. But they sell products. One one skew might be on four different locations across the floor. They don't know where it came from. Ah. They don't know where it's running out. So it's actually about taking. Uh, shelf optimization. Shelf optimization, which is what we do as well, but taking input about what's actually on the store. That when I talked about that, that robot technology, then you talk about vending machines with cameras on them that identify the consumer as it walks up to the machine. Um, we work with that, and I think multi-channel uh, is really interesting. So these are really practical examples. So like right. one, one supplier. Well, you, you mean like in terms of recognizing someone's been in a store and then goes online? Like yeah, and then we we have a really interesting another customer in Japan that has vending machines that uh, is a, also a transport company. So they, they you know, use the cards that scan onto the platform. So, they, so we know, you know who the person is, we know which train station they get onto in the morning at what time. They can use that card to then go buy a drink from a vending machine. They can then go into a convenience store and buy something to eat or, or, or some stationery or a newspaper. They then, we know when they get off, we know when they come back, we know how those ch- things change. And so getting, being able to map uh, individuals across their journey and their multiple touch points becomes a really in, becomes really interesting. Um, yeah, I think they're the things we think about. Uh, you know, yeah. Well, I think it's time to go on stage. <laughs> I'm gonna go give a talk. Yeah. Oh yeah, you've got 15 <laughs> minutes before you're uh, doing your keynote. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.